Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. There wasn't a day in 2002 that the New Jersey Nets were not in first place in the Eastern Conference. They had trashed the expectations. Jason Kidd brought playmaking genius and a new ambition from Phoenix, but his preseason goals have been met with waves of outside skepticism. But here they were in April of 2002 with a franchise record 52 wins, heading into the NBA playoffs with a home court advantage guaranteed all the way through, dare we say it, the NBA Finals. It was new territory for the franchise and many of its players. Kidd was the leader of the dramatic turnaround. Well, we were excited, but I think we were also scared a little bit, or I wouldn't want to say scared, but nervous, because this is the first time we're the number one seed. This is our first year together, and you could say that the challenge or the pressure was on us to be able to get out of the first round. The Nets got all the way to the NBA Finals, but to do it, they had to survive a crucible in the first round, a five-game series against the Indiana Pacers that went beyond the limits. Welcome, everyone, to the 2002 NBA playoffs on ESPN. We kick off our playoff coverage today with the Eastern Conference's top seed, New Jersey, playing host to the eighth-seeded Indiana Pacers. While the Nets have been on top of the East for a couple of months now, the Pacers needed all 82 games to reach the postseason. Looking at Indiana's playoff history, they've been in the postseason in 12 of the last 13 years, and this is their fifth in a row. They lost to the Lakers in the NBA Finals in six games two years ago. As for the Nets, this is new territory. It's their first ever Atlantic Division championship since joining the NBA way back in 76. New Jersey's playoff history, much different than their opponents. This is their first playoff appearance in four years. And the last time they won a playoff series was against Philadelphia way back in the first round of the playoffs in 1984. Two young and exciting teams will kick off the NBA playoffs on ESPN. It's the Pacers and Nets. Chris Carino was in his first season as the Nets radio play-by-play man, and he was heading into the 2002 NBA playoffs with the East number one team. 
So the Nets were the one seed, had won 52 games, doubled their win total from the year before, and still nobody was buying how good they were. They were saying, well, the East is down. Let's see what they do when they get into the playoffs. So you're eager to see this team and what they're going to be able to do. And, and everybody who's been around them has confidence in them, know how good they are. But now here come the Indiana Pacers who have all this talent that had been banged up all year. And the only reason they're the eight seed is because they had all these injuries all year. New Jersey's TV voice, Ian Eagle, had been around a little bit longer. He'd already seen a couple of promising Nets eras go off the rails. There was a little bit of fatalism built into the job. I felt some uneasiness because everything that they had accomplished that year was based on them advancing. If you finish with the best record in franchise history, the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, you do it in an unexpected fashion, all of that can be wiped away with a first-round exit. You're just a footnote at that point. So in order to validate what they did, they had to win the series. Indiana was good. They were a really talented team. And I thought the Pacers felt confident that they could win the series. And you just didn't know how the Nets would perform under the brightest of lights. Even with everything they accomplished that year, they were still under the radar in many ways. Indiana was a talented but transitional team near the end of its Reggie Miller era. They were two years removed from playing in the NBA Finals and two years away from winning 61 games. Miller was still there, but 23-year-olds like forward Jermaine O'Neal and point guard Jamal Tinsley had ascended to the primary roles, and the Pacers had picked up Ron Artest for Jalen Rose in a midseason trade. Net center Tom McCullough had faced the Pacers in the playoffs with Philadelphia the two years before. The Sixers lost Indiana in the second round in 2000 and beat them in the first round in 2001. I knew how dangerous the Indiana Pacers were when I first got to the Sixers. They were the team that knocked us out in my first year, and I saw firsthand just how good Reggie was, the kind of defense they played, and how dangerous they were. When we were the Sixers, we were one, they were eight, and so here they are again. We're the one, they're the eight, and I kept thinking, this team is so good. Why do they keep ending up in the H-spot? This is not a team that I want to face in the first round, and with it being uh, only a best-of-five series, I think it makes it that much more difficult to put them away. Here's assistant coach Mike O'Corn. I don't know what happened to them during the season, but to us, they were not a number eight seed. <laughs> us being new and them being at eight, not really deserving an eight, maybe more of a three or four seed. So here we go. And Nets guard Curry Kittles. You're playing the Basers, which oddly is Reggie Miller. And we all know about Reggie Miller and what he <laughs> We all knew about that. And Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest at the time. Those guys were a tough matchup for a number one seed, but we knew we were the better team. It had all started six months earlier against the same Indiana team right in the same spot at the Meadowlands. The first game is a net for Jason Kidd, Richard Jefferson, Jason Collins, and Todd McCullough, plus the return of Curry Kittles. The Nets had blitzed the Pacers in the fourth quarter for a comeback win that sparked a 7-1 start to the season. They didn't have the same fast start to the playoffs. The Pacers came into New Jersey and won 89-83 to as Jermaine O'Neal put up 30 points and 11 rebounds. Here's Nets GM, Rod Thorne. It wasn't like it was a real close game. They sort of dominated us. And I remember being in a locker room after that game, and I remember Kenyon Martin saying, 
that's not going to happen again when O'Neal dominates the game. I guarantee you that. Kenyon was a tough guy, and I'm thinking, well, I hope you can back that up because O'Neal looked pretty good to beat it. Brian Scalabrini. Watching, they just, like, controlled the pace. They controlled the pace more than any other team that we played in that run. It was just like every time we tried to do something, they just knew exactly how they wanted to play, how they sprinted back. They pounded the glass, but they got their guard back. They didn't turn it over. They got a good shot. They got you in foul trouble. They used their physicality. So all the things that people said that was going to happen was happening at that time. And I just thought, man, is it is it impossible to turn people over in the playoffs? Is it impossible to control pace in the playoffs? And I don't. I would be really curious to like go back and watch the games with Kid and wonder what like have him give me a narrative of what he's thinking when when the game is going on because I just felt like our transition game come to a, a screeching halt and that's what we were great at. So I don't know if everyone says the game slows down in the playoffs. Well, they were right about that series. I'm not sure they were right about the rest of them. I thought we found better opportunities to run later on or better opportunities to turn people over. I just felt like when we played them, it was like impossible to turn them over and get like our offense really going. Over the rest of the series, Martin held up his end. In game two, O'Neill shot three for 11 and scored 12 points. He scored 56 points total over the final four games. The Nets won game two, 95 to 79, to even the series as Jason Kidd came through with 20 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists. We ended up losing that first game. That really showed a lot of character for us to understand what it took to win a playoff game, but to understand not to panic. That first game was incredible because it made everybody a little nervous, but it also put everybody on edge that we had to keep fighting and that we weren't as good as we thought we were. Assistant coach Mike O'Corn. They beat us handily in the first game. It might have been close score-wise, but they took it right to us. And not that we were shocked, but we, wow. Okay, so we regroup, and we win that second game at home. And now we go to game three in Indiana. In an epic series with a spectacular finale, it's easy for the Nets' one-point win in game three to get lost in the background. But one shot in the final minute at Indiana's Canseco Fieldhouse saved the season. Here's Rod Thorne. It was a really tough series, but it was a series that uh, we probably needed to have to win games when you have to win them. Because when you look at it, almost every team that wins a championship or goes far, there comes a time you have to win a game on the road. You have to win a game on the road almost every year. You lose it all somewhere along the line. You've got to win a game on the road. And the real good teams do that. We were really fortunate, but we did. We won it. The Nets held the lead from the opening minutes until the Pacers caught them in the middle of the third quarter. Over the final 20 minutes, there were six ties and 14 lead changes. The last lead change came on a Curry-Kittle three-pointer with 22.5 seconds remaining. Chances are they're not going to let Jason get the shot. They're going to switch on him, and Van Horn or Kittles or somebody is going to have to... Make come up big right here. Kenyon Kidd for the lead missing. And it's picked up. They rotate. Kittles for the lead. Oh, a big shot. Harry Kittles is only 2 of 11 tonight. A spectacular shot. And Indiana has fallen behind 
the Pacers 83. That is Kerry Kittle's first field goal since the first quarter. Oh, that's a huge shot. Kerry Kittle feels great right now. And that's the biggest shot of his life. Here's assistant coach Mike O'Corrin. Van Horn misses a shot, and Jason Kidd tracks down the miss. I thought he was going to put it up. He finds Kerry Kittles right in front of our bench, and Kittles hits a three. And that's center Todd McCulloch. He was a clutch player, and he's just a cool cat, and so it doesn't surprise me at all that he was able to step up and hit a big shot like that. He's got the mechanics. He's got the, the big game temperament, so uh, no surprise that he hit that. Kittles' three-pointer put the Nets up 85-83. to 83. Indiana's Jermaine O'Neal made one of two free throws with 3.6 seconds left to make it a one-point game. And finally, the Pacers' Reggie Miller missed the jumper at the buzzer. The Nets held on to an 85-84 win and a 2-1 lead in the series. Here's Curry Kittles. I just remember having a rough night. I think I was 1 for 10 proud of making that shot. But I was, I was confident. We had timeout came or whatever, and I was in the game, and I was like, I'm going to make the next one. I get a shot. The next one was going to go in. J.K. was like, I got you. I got you. Sure enough, he found me on that left wing and zipped the pass over to me. That was a big moment for me in my career. I remember after that game, sitting in the locker room and just thinking about my journey, what I had gone through the last year with the injury and missing the season and spending no time really around basketball. When I was in California, I did not play basketball at all. I didn't touch a basketball. So to then be on a playoff team, number one seed the following year, 50-some win season, and now in the postseason playing against Reggie Miller and to make that shot after having a rough night, it really proved to me that I'm a resilient player, resilient person. I'll never forget that moment in my basketball career. Curry was an amazing player with incredible speed, and he became a big-time threat shooting from the outside. He could really fill it up, and he was a great compliment to Jason Kidd. I don't remember him taking bad shots because he was a guy who always made good decisions. The Nets had drafted Kittle's eighth overall out of Villanova in 1996. As a rookie, he set a franchise record with 158 three-pointers. He's still third in Nets franchise history in career three-pointers made. The next year, Kittle shot 42% from three-point range and averaged a career-high 17 points for a Nets team that made it back to the playoffs and looked like it was on the rise. But things fell apart quickly in the 1999 lockout season, and after knee surgery in 2000, Kittles was out of the game for a year. He spent the year in California working on his rehab and wondering if he had any basketball future at all. Here's Todd McCullough. Kerry was just a cool cat, you know, one of my best friends on the team and just always such a positive attitude. And I think through some of the trials that he had, you know, physically with his knee in the previous year, I think he was, you know, really just enjoying being back on the court and being able to trust his needs and to be able to use all the talents and skills that he had at one point, really enjoying the ride. And in the second one, not taking for granted, you know, how quickly things can change and how much an injury can affect your career. And so I think he was enjoying every minute and really just excelling. How even keeled he was and how positive he was and, and what a good teammate he was. It was just, it was really fun to share that year with him. Kittles got back on the court in the summer of 2001 with the Nets' summer league team in Boston. It's typically a time for rookies, but after being out for a year, Kittles wanted the reps, and he teamed up with the team's deep draft class. Richard Jefferson, Brandon Armstrong, Brian Scalabrini, and Jason Collins. Kerry Kittles is a great I mean, he's, he's the dude. 
everyone wants to play with Kerry Kittle because he is a great teammate. And he will, on both ends of the court, defensively, he'll stick his nose in there for a guard, and then he'll get steals and deflections. He'll take charges. He can even come from a, a, get a block shot. And then also, offensively, there are very few people who can run the floor like Kerry Kittles. And he's like a perfect complementary piece to Jason Kidd. After missing the entire season, Kittle started all 82 games for the Nets in 2001 and 2. He averaged 13 points, shot a career-high 46.6%, and made 40% of his three-pointers. And on a team that wanted to defend and run, Kittles was a perfect piece. He and Kidd looked like they'd been playing together forever. Here's Chris Carino. Kerry Kittles was a humble player who also perfectly fit into that system. Terrific three-point shooter. He was born to run the fast break. Today's game, people love to spot up on the wings in a fast break and shoot threes. Back then, it was not as common, but the Nets were this great fast break team, and Kerry would drift to the wing, and Jason would find him. Just so eloquent when he ran the break. I don't know if that's the right word to use, eloquent, for a guy to run, but graceful. Kerry Kittles was graceful and had a great demeanor for that team. Just a a low-key guy, never got too high and low, and it always seemed like the moment was never too big for Kerry Kittles. And Ian Eagle. Kerry Kittles, a gazelle. He just was the perfect two-guard to play with Jason Kidd, and he was so explosive on the break. That's the vision I have when I think back of Kerry. I just think of his all-out sprints, his ability to find angles and to get out quickly. And it probably is a disservice to what he was as an all-around player because he was a terrific all-around player. Had a great-looking jump shot, was highly active defensively, but it's hard to wipe away that memory of him trotting out and getting to the outside and beginning to angle in and knowing that the ball was going to find him from Kid, They just had a sixth sense between them. Brian Scalabrini. Me and Kerry became really close. We'd go out to dinner together and everything like that. He was explaining to me the journey and his injury, and he thought about retiring, and maybe he wasn't going to play him anymore because his knee was so bad. And, you know, it's not like nowadays where guys take two years off and they people think, oh, it'll be fine. Like back then, like you took time off, people didn't think you were going to come back. And so I understood all the backstories with, with Kerry Kittles because I got to know him throughout the year. And uh, that was a huge, I mean, it's just a huge moment for him. And obviously it was a huge shot for us. After Kittles' big shot, the Nets were a game away from winning their first playoff series since 1984 and moving on. With three off days between games three and four, they actually went home to New Jersey in between games. But game four in Indiana was a debacle. The Nets shot less than 40%, turned it over 19 times, and scored just 74 points. They lost by 23. This was the last season before the NBA extended the first round to a seven-game series. So they headed back to New Jersey for game five with the season in the balance. Here's Chris Carino. To this day, that is still one of the greatest environments I ever remember in two decades of doing Nets games on the radio, that was still one of the great environments I ever remember and still probably the most memorable game for me to broadcast of my career. And his old radio partner turned assistant coach, Mike O'Corn. It was one of the more 
gun-wrenching build-ups to that day, it just lasted forever before the game for all of us. It was suffocating. There was an early eight-point lead for the Nets. It didn't last. By halftime, they were tied. And they stayed dead even after that. Tied at the end of the third quarter. Tied at the end of regulation. Tied at the end of the first overtime. From halftime on, there were 13 ties and 16 lead changes. They traded the lead 11 times in the third quarter alone. But with five and a half minutes to go in the fourth quarter, the Nets were up 90-81 to after a 10-0 run. Kenyon Martin, big shot. He's got 22. Oh, and a shot from Kidd. Five and a half to play in the fourth. Kidd, tough shot. Ali may have gotten a piece of it. Van Horn falls and Kidd right there for the foul. Under four to play. Seven point New Jersey lead. O'Neal powers in. Tough shot. And it's a one point game. A 10 to 2 run right now for the Indiana Pacers over the last four minutes. What was a nine point lead has been cut to one. Kidd the jumper. Puts it in. Jason Kidd, another big bucket. The Pacers pushed back, but Kidd's jumper. And the Nets up 94-91 to with a minute to go. Miller's two free throws cut it to one. Kidd's pair pushed the lead back to three, 96-93. The Nets got a stop when Indiana's Kevin Ollie missed at the rim. Richard Jefferson grabbed the rebound. Ollie fouled him, and RJ headed to the line with 5.1 seconds left and missed both. Chaos followed. Indiana's Austin Crozier grabbed the rebound. The Pacers pushed the ball up the floor. It was pure desperation. And then... Miller for three. Oh, he backed it in. He backed it in. And the game is tied. We're going to overtime. Here's Rod Thorne. Richard goes to the line, misses two. They rebound, come down the court. Miller fires one from between the top of the key and the center court, makes it. Knocked it in. Now, did he get it off in time? In those days, you couldn't go over and take a look. There was no instant replay for the referees. And so referee counted it, even if it was late, which it was. <laughs> you, uh, you still had no recourse. I remember when Miller made the shot. And again, my feeling was it was late, but... I'm getting ready to walk out of the box that I sat in to watch the games. And when he made that shot, I fell to my knees. It was that kind of shot. And, you know, Reggie Miller was known for doing that kind of stuff. It was another dramatic moment for Miller in a career full of them. It was also, if you ask anybody around the Nets about it, a shot that shouldn't have counted. Now the officials are concurring. Bob Delaney signaled yes. Joe Crawford now saying with the other official checking it, and they say, yes, it beat the buzzer. Let's take a listen. And again, the key, listen for the buzzer. The ball is in his hand. The red light to me, the red light is on behind the backboard, which means right there, the game should be over. That was way after the buzzer. That wasn't fingertips. Like, Reggie was loaded when that buzzer went off. And then I just remember Kid going to a completely different level in overtime. It was almost like enough of this stuff already. Like, enough of this, we're not going to win, or no, the game slows down, or you can't win unless you, you know, play in the half court. And what we all now know, it's great players make great plays in the playoffs. Great players have moments in the playoffs. That's 
just the way that it goes. And I remember Kidd in the moment where it was uncharacteristic for him to score and dominate games. I remember him just completely saying, all right, enough already. Even though, you know, Indiana Pacers were well accomplished, enough already with this stuff. You guys aren't on my level. I'm going to a new level and there's no way anybody can touch me here. And there were moments when he did that, hit domination down the stretch of scoring, passing, rebounding, pushing the ball late where everyone else walks it up. That's what really stood out to me in that uh, game. They traded baskets for the first few minutes of overtime before one of those razor's edge plays that changes everything. The Pacers were up 100-98 to with two minutes to go when Indiana's Ron Mercer drove the baseline. Kidd stepped in front and drew contact. Mercer scored. The whistle blew. Here's Rod Thorne. There's a collision near the hoop, and referee called it a charge. Is it a charge or a, or a uh, block? He called it a charge. So we get the ball, go down, score. They missed. We score, and we ended up winning the game. But if that call, I still can see that play. Could have gone either way. If they get that call, chances are they win the game. And Mike O'Corn. Ron Mercer drives baseline with them up two, with Indiana up two, and Kid comes over, and it's one of those calls. He could go for your way if he could go against you. And they called an offensive foul on Mercer. Now the ball went in. If that went in, he goes to the line, they go up five with under two minutes. It could have been a problem for us. They called an offensive foul. Martin scores to tie it up. It was literally right in front of our bench, that baseline. I don't know who made the call, but it could have been a block. But because Jason was such a fierce defender and all-first team, all-defender, I think he got the benefit. I do. And that happens with superstars. But Miller still wasn't done with them. With the Nets up by two in the final seconds of the first overtime, Reggie busted down the lane for a two-handed dunk that tied the game again with three seconds left. Miller gets past Kittles. Miller inside with the slam. Reggie Miller ties it with 3.1 remaining. That was the last of his 31 points. Here's Curry Kittles. He's late 30s. I mean, yes, he's still good. But that game, it was like, who is this guy? I mean, I was all over him. And, and, I, and every shot he took, it seemed like he was not going to miss. I remember when he drove past me down the lane and dunked on our entire team. And I'm like, he's 38, 39 years old. What's going on here? Reggie Miller and that game five stands out in my career because it's you don't have many moments playing against iconic players. Everything's on the line now, right? It's game five, win or go home, postseason. You know, it's money time, and there you have it. He's putting up a performance. It's probably one of his best playoff performances in, in a loss, for sure in a loss. And Ian Eagle. Reggie Miller. The heave at the end of regulation, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Reggie Miller, first overtime, a big dunk to keep the Pacers in it. That's what Hall of Famers do. But in that second overtime, you could feel it. You could feel the separation, and you could feel Jason Kidd willing this team to the finish line. And he just was not going to let them lose. It wasn't going to happen. And you asked the question earlier, why was he brought here? This is why he was brought here. This fourth quarter is his time. He has the last seven New Jersey points, 11 of his 22, here in this fourth quarter. Two clutch free throws from Jason Kidd. Kidd answers right back. Kidd with the left hand. Oh, 
Jason Kidd. Ollie trying to go for the steal. Kidd knocks it down. And it gives him a five-point lead in the second overtime. Kidd has played the entire second half in overtimes. Kidd has to put it up. Ollie puts it in. Ollie right in his face. And the Nets back up by five. Jason Kidd, a spectacular performance. Kidd scored 12 points in the fourth corner to keep the season alive and ended up one of those absolutely crazy stat lines. 31 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, and 4 steals in 52 minutes. It probably wasn't my best shooting game, but I wasn't afraid of the moment of taking big shots or fighting the open guy. And so it was fun because also when we look at the players in the league who've won championships, they've always delivered in those situations. And so to do it our first year in New Jersey was something that I'll never forget. Kidd had spent the entire season lifting the Nets to new heights and ended up finishing second in the MVP voting. His will to win had changed the mentality of the entire franchise. Here's Todd McCullough. I think he just wouldn't let us lose, and I think he just has the ability to do whatever it takes to win. He just willed us to victory, and I think he really wanted to to go on to the next round, and I think players of that stature that have the ball in their hands and they, you know, they believe in themselves and they believe in us, they can take control of the game. I think he did that. He felt like it was his time, that uh, Reggie had has his time, and it was J-Kid time. And Curry Kittles. J-Kid was a different breed. There wasn't many guys in the league like J-Kid. I mean, you could count them on one hand. The guys who were mentally tough and who really thrived under pressure, he always seemed composed, never rushed. There were games where he'd have eight, nine turnovers, and it was just like he'd get the ball again. He wouldn't slow down. He wouldn't hesitate at all, and he wasn't known to be a scorer. And there you have it, 31 points in a big game. There's a reason why it was Jason Kidd, a Hall of Famer. There's a reason why he was in the conversation for MVP that year. It wasn't a solo act. Keith Van Horn had 27 points and made five three-pointers out of eight attempts. There was also Kenyon Martin, who had made a promise to Rod Thorne after game one. Just like Kidd, Martin played every minute of game five after halftime. He played 56 of 58 minutes in the double overtime game and scored 29 points, eight rebounds, four assists, and two steals. Here's Curry Kittles. A coming out party for Kenyon as well in the postseason. This is his first playoff experience, and he's going up against a tough opponent in, in Jermaine O'Neal. And they're going at it, and it's really competitive in the paint because you know that's what Kenyon operated in. So he found a way. I think as a player, he wasn't necessarily super skilled, but Kenyon found a way of affecting the game, impacting the game, using his quickness, slashing, getting to the free throw line. And Jason Kidd. When you talk about Kmart, our emotional leader, he's our heart. He delivered because when you talk about Indiana, again, a team, that I really consider not an eighth seed in that year of the playoffs, being able to score, to get out on the break, and then also his post up to his, his little jump hook or his little floater. And then again, he wasn't scared. A lot of times in these situations, uh, you can duck and hide. And so I was very happy to see Kmart respond. He rang the bell for us that day and uh, helped us win that game. Jason Collins. In the playoffs, your superstars need to be superstars. <laughs> And then the bench guys need to do your job. And as Shaq would say, the others need to do your job kind of thing. So 
we were very fortunate that our superstars were superstars. Our superstars were definitely Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin, but the others being Kerry Kittles, Keith Van Horn, Richard Jefferson, Aaron Williams, Todd McCullough, he had great hands and ability to finish. It was really a, a team effort. Lucius Harris, Sweet Lou coming in. You know, we had shooters. So we had a lot of guys who stepped up and supported our two main horses in J-Kid and Kmart. There's a battle. We just had to fight. <laughs> There's no easy way to say it other than just, especially in the NBA back in the day when that's 2002 playoffs. <laughs> Very physical. <laughs> so it's a battle. And we were very fortunate to come out on top in that playoff series. It was a first-round series that felt like the finals for all the weight it carried. It meant these were not the same old Nets. They were not a fluke number one seed. They had faced a playoff-tested team and survived in the most pressure-filled circumstances. They were moving on, another step on the road that would take them to the NBA Finals. Here's Ian Eagle. Ultimately... It was the biggest win in franchise history, and you could feel it courtside at the Meadowlands. I was doing the game next to Bill Raftery, who had been associated with the team for so long, and the emotions attached to it, watching it not just through my eyes. You know, at that point, I had done eight years of play-by-play with the Nets, so a long enough stretch to certainly feel all of the emotions that you feel, but... Bill had been there a long time. And to watch it through his lens as well, for me on a personal level, added something special to the whole night. It was cathartic in many ways. Anyone that was a fan of the Nets or covered the Nets, certainly worked for the Nets, it was this release because the team had finally arrived. And it was just the second round, but it meant so much. And Chris Carino. That, to me, was the most important. That game five against the Pacers was the most important game to me in franchise history in the last 20 years. Because no one was buying us as a number one seed. And you're going up against a great Pacer team. And they don't go to the finals if they lose. And maybe they take a step back and don't play as well the next year. Maybe they break up the team if they don't win that series against Indiana. And think about just getting the one seed and then getting to the finals what it did for the perception of the franchise. They had always been kind of lumped in with the Clippers all those years, kind of the second fiddle in town, never really won anything, never made any noise. And then all of a sudden they go to the finals. And now it's like the Nets have been to the finals. The Nets were four wins away from an NBA championship. That just put them in another level. It changed the way you thought of the entire franchise. And it was all on the line in that game five against Indiana. Next week, the Nets take on legendary franchises coming back to beat the Celtics in the conference finals and reaching their first NBA finals against the Lakers. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.